So in chapter 1, this is how it starts. I just want to go through a brief overview so we can get into chapter 3. But chapter 1, um, Naomi's on the scene with her husband um, and her two kids. Her two, her two boys marry uh, two women, uh, Ruth and um, Orpah, right? And what ends up happening in chapter 1, uh, there's a famine in Bethlehem. And they escape Bethlehem and they go to Moab, right? So they leave the presence of God to go and follow their instincts, to go somewhere logical where there is food, right? And what ends up happening is they actually find death there. And so the husband dies, the two boys die, and now Naomi's pretty much left alone, yet she still has her daughter-in-laws. But she's in this place of despair and hurt and bitterness that basically she tells her daughter-in-laws that, like, I'm old, I can't carry any more boys, you know, I can't raise any more children for you to marry and to be a part and to continue in this family, like my family, right? It's just me. So she says, go back to your lands. You can go back to your homes and, and go find a husband. Orpah's like, see ya. I'm going. That's a good idea, right? And Ruth, you know, she says this beautiful, wonderful thing. You guys can read it in chapter one. Many people use it in their marriage vows, which is kind of weird. Um, but she's basically like, I will, you know, like, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Wherever you go, I'll go. If you die, I die, right? Like, Sounds much better when you read it. I'm paraphrasing. Um, basically, she was committed. You know, like she was not going to leave Naomi. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and in the midst of it, we see that it's, it was more than not leaving Naomi. She wanted to follow Naomi to where God was, which was back in Bethlehem, because that's eventually where Naomi takes her. And we see that at the beginning of chapter 2, where they finally get to Bethlehem. And people recognize Naomi. They're like, oh my goodness, it's, it's Naomi. Like, remember, because it's such a small town in that time that everyone knew everyone. And so she's like, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, right? Which means bitter, right? It, it was twofold. It was like she was bitter and she thought God was being bitter towards her. And so through this circumstance, it kind of hardened her heart towards God. But as she continued on with life, it was realized by her as she looked back on things and started to see things for the way they were that God was working in the midst of all of it and that God was being completely good to her. It was an amazing thing. Even in the midst of all this tragedy, God was still being good and merciful. And so we kind of see her countenance change, right? We see her countenance change, the way that she um, interacts, the way that she speaks to Ruth. And so Ruth, being a good daughter-in-law, goes to provide for her mother-in-law. And so she goes to the fields. And one of the laws of Israel was that if anyone was a foreigner or a stranger or a widow or poor, they could glean from the fields after the harvest workers, right? So after everything that has been harvested, they could go behind and get the leftovers. And it was God providing this law. It's a twofold thing. It provided a, a, a way for everyone to love on those who were less fortunate or looked down upon. And it also provided a need for those who couldn't provide for themselves, those who were poor, those who were widows, right? And so Ruth does this, and God completely provides. And what we find out in the midst of all this, because remember, there was one other law within Israel that's very vital to this entire book, and that was the law of the kinsman redeemer, right? So here's Ruth. She had a husband. Now he's gone, right? And one of the laws that we see in Israel is that the next of kin, the next of closest kin within that family would then marry that widow. Why? To carry on the name. It was important. It was vital. It was really, really important. And so what we find out as they come back to Bethlehem, 
Naomi tells Ruth that she does have a kinsman, right? They have, there's someone that's close, that's a part of the family that's close that could be a potential kinsman redeemer. And so what we find out as she goes to glean in these fields that it happens to be the field of that kinsman to Naomi, right? And his name is Boaz, right? And Boaz, who was off doing something, comes back and he asks the manager of the fields, who's this woman who's gleaning? And the man gives a good report of Ruth, basically saying she's been working hard, she's been diligent, but that's Naomi's daughter-in-law. They just came back here and now she's here. She's in your field. And Boaz knows that Naomi is his kins, part of his, his family, right? So he, he realizes he's putting things together and he's being really, really kind to her. And so we see, we see the romance without the romance, right? We see the romance without like the flowers and the candles, right? We see the romance in the sense of him providing for her, him being kind to her, him being loving and merciful, right? Things that, that God expects from us as Christians to begin with, regardless of the romance, right? Not that type of love, but the love that God shows us, us, which is an agape love, right? Putting the other person before us and looking to their needs and their wants and their desires, right? Not expecting anything in return. And so this is what Boaz shows to her and eventually um, kind of welcomes her in as time goes by, lets her eat with him and the other harvesters, and she's completely blessed by this, gives her extra food to go home to bring to Naomi. And as she goes back in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, Ruth finally tells um, Naomi that she was in the field of Boaz. And Naomi says in verse 20 of chapter 2, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And so like she's, this is where her like countenance changes. She's like, God is working. Like, what are the chances that all the fields she goes to, it's Boaz's? And what are the chances that as she goes to that field, there's this connection happening, right? That he is being kind to her and loving to her. And Naomi says, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And that's the very first time where Ruth kind of figures out and understands that this is the kinsman redeemer, right? This is, this is the man, right, who, who can come and redeem the family name and redeem the family. And Ruth the Moabite has said in verse 21, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So Boaz basically says, you can continue on even far further than what you originally attended, intended, that you can stay on for a few more months. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. And so here we see that one of the harvests was over. And Ruth and Boaz had been around each other for much of this time, right? Much of this time. We see the interactions in chapter 2, but we see, I'm, I'm sure there was more than that than what we get, so we can read between the lines here. But a lot of interactions covering the barley and wheat harvest so they had the opportunity to get to know one another. And I think it's wonderful that they had the opportunity to get to know one another in a setting without, like, any pressure, right? Like, like they are within a group of people, you know? Like, it's not this, you know, blind date. It's not this one-on-one. -on -one. There's so much pressure, and you've got to talk about this and that. Like, no, it was just, it was organic. It was free. 
you know, and it was, it was a, a friendship before anything, you know, and I, I love that, like, between me and my wife, that before we got married, we were best of friends, right, and I, I don't think that's changed at all, like, I still, I still think of us as best of friends, but before there was any type of, like, romance, per se, we were friends, right, like, obviously, I thought she was attractive and everything, but it started off as a friendship, and it continues as a friendship, and I see this with Boaz and Ruth here as they get to know one another, you know, in the fields with the harvesters around them. Um, you know, Boaz is here as pretty much the boss. Ruth is working, but they're talking. So we wouldn't call this like a typical type of dating scene, right? Like, you know, how do you know? I don't even know how it goes on today, guys. I'm so sorry. Like, I'm, I've, I've met that age where, like, I don't know how it works anymore. You know, I don't know, like, it seems like you guys do everything over the phone now. You know, like you guys Snapchat and text each other and like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me after service. But but when we think of dating in our modern culture, it wasn't like that. It was different. Okay? They weren't paired off as a couple. They didn't have this, listen, they didn't have this one-on-one time with each other. But rather they spent their time together in the context of a group. And I think that's really good. I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, I think as we, as we study through the Song of Solomon, we're going to see this as well, that there's, there's wisdom in that. Um, because, you know, oftentimes when we're, when we're one-on-one, especially with men, I know how men work, okay, because I am a man. Um, oftentimes we do things to impress, and it's not who we are truly, right? Like, you, you try to do things to gain something sometimes, and it's... It can be manipulative. It can be, um, even if it's not, you're not trying to get a bad thing out of it. What I'm trying to say is, you can see the true content and character of a person by the way that, not only the way they treat you, but how they treat others. So in a group setting, that's really, that's really key. It's really, it's really important. You know, because I like her, of course I'm going to treat her well. But it's, you know, there's only so much time that you're going to see that. But once you get married, guys, you know, like it's on. You're with them 24-7. You can't keep up the facade or the charade of being kind. Eventually, your true content of your character is going to come out, like who you truly are. And so it's important that you see their character and how they treat others. And we're going to see that in the Song of Solomon in chapter 1. I think it's in verse 3 where the Shulamite woman speaks of, of the man, and, and she says this at the end of verse 3. She says, therefore, the virgins love you. I know that sounds like, like does, this doesn't fit the narrative. But the, the context of that is she sees that the other women like him because of his character, because of the, but because of his, his values. Not just because of how he looks, not because of his skills or how impressive he is, but no, the, the content of his character. They see it. Other people see it. And so if you're, you know, wondering, you know, how is this, is this guy good enough for me? Is this girl good enough for me? Well, see how they treat others. And also see how others see them, you know. And that's not to say that we always have to get our input from other people. But I think it's important and, it's, and there's wisdom in knowing that their true character can be seen by a multitude of people, not just the one person that they're honing in on. And so this is happening through this time. Now we get into, into chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to get through 1 through 5. It says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? 
In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. And so we're going to leave off on that cliffhanger. We're not going to finish tonight. But that sounds, that's all we're going to go through tonight. No, I, I'm just starting. I'm saying that's all we're going to read. That's all we're going to read. We're going to go through it. We're going to study it. You close your Bible? No, no. I'm just not going to read further because, listen, listen. This is the wonderful advice that this older lady, Naomi, is giving to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to go basically um, make herself available to this man, okay, in a proper and moral way, basically implying to this man, letting him know that she's interested, she's available, right? And I'm going to explain why this has to happen in a minute. But here Naomi says, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? And what's interesting here is that we know that their relationship is that they're in-laws. But here she refers to Ruth as her daughter. And so we see, again, I think there's a change of countenance with Naomi, but there's also this intimacy that's happening between the two that she now considers her basically as her daughter. And so she says this, Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Basically what she is saying, because this word security here is the same word that we see in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9, the same word for rest. Basically, shall I not find this rest, this security? This is where Naomi hoped that her daughter-in-law would find rest and security in the home of a new husband. Right here she is a widow. She's alone. Can God provide for her? Can she live the rest of her life without a man? Yeah, 100%, right? But God has made something good for man and woman, right? And that's a husband or a wife. Those are good things. But we do know throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that being single is not a bad thing. And you know what? Paul actually says that sometimes it's better than being married. Isn't that interesting? So here's God. And this is where like, I think a lot of people get confused, and some people have a, a misconception of marriage and thinking, you know, maybe it's not that great of a thing. It's not a good thing. Like, but here's God in Genesis chapter 2, 3, I can't remember, where he creates this union between man and woman that we call marriage. Right? It's, it's a good thing. God made Adam, he made man, and it was good, right? I don't want us to think that it was bad. But what we find out is that God knows, like God knows. So it's not like God made a mistake and he's like, oh my goodness, I just made Adam and now, now he's bored. Now he doesn't have someone, he doesn't have a helpmate, he doesn't have someone to be with. He's like, well, let's see if the, the elephants work. Well, no, they're not a good companion. Let's see if the giraffes work. No, they're not a good companion because God does this, right? We see this in Genesis. He tries to find a companion for Adam and nothing else that God created was made fit for Adam. None of the animals, right? So he makes who? Eve, woman, right? Woman comes from man, and they become one. 
And he says, as he makes Eve, that she is good. She's a helpmeet, comparable to him, for him. And so when God made Adam, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, I made a mistake. Like, now I got to make woman. No, like his intention the whole time was to make woman. And as he tells Adam to go find a helpmate or a companion comparable, and he realized that animals aren't, I think it was for our edification and our understanding that animals just don't, that's not the thing. Nothing else compares. Nothing else compares to woman when it comes to man. And so he makes an equal, right? We've got to understand that. He makes an equal out of, out of man into woman, and they become one. And it's a good thing. So God made Adam, and, and it was good. When he was single, it was good. It was fine. But when he made Eve, it was better, right? It was better. So marriage is a good thing. And I think as, as you grow and you mature, we're going to realize that many of you are going to get married, right? A majority of us get married. That's the intention that God has. But sometimes some of us don't fit in that box. And is that a bad thing? No, because God gives the spiritual gift of celibacy, which means singleness, which means not being married. And that's not a bad thing. But I think, as we grow up in the church, that oftentimes when there's young people, they've got to get married, right? Like, they've got to get married. No, look, if, if, if a young man or even an old man or a young woman or an old woman, if they're single and they're walking with the Lord, great. That's all they need. Now, if they desire a spouse, God's going to provide that, right? But we as the church shouldn't be forcing that. Sometimes God allows people to be single. And Paul says that is a good thing. Sometimes it's better than being married. And I'll get back to my original point. Why is that? Yeah, you can serve the Lord. I have no other responsibility, right? I have no other responsibility. When I'm here on Wednesday nights, you know what my responsibility is? And I lack in it a lot of times. It's not you guys. First and foremost, it's my wife. And then do you know who's next? My kids. And then it's Joe, right? Joe's last. Joe's last. Out of that, that circle, you're last. Yeah. Right? So, but listen, if I didn't have a spouse, if I didn't have kids, I, I have more freedom to do the ministry of the Lord. It, it's not that one's better than the other, I would say. Both have their pros and cons. Because here's the thing. Now that I'm doing ministry, well, who am I doing ministry with? My wife. And I was, I was single. I wouldn't have that benefit. Right? I wouldn't have that helpmate because she's constantly helping me. Whether it's doing you know, physical things or it's reminding me like, hey, don't be dumb. Don't say something stupid. Or like, that was really good and she's really encouraging to me. Right? So, so there's pros and cons to both. And it's, I wouldn't even say there's cons, to be honest. There's just pros to both and they're just different pros. Right? And so God allows us and he's given us this blessing of marriage. Okay, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And Ruth, or Naomi says to Ruth that you can find security. She's like, she's like I want to help you find this security, this covering, this rest that you find within a husband. Because that is the role and the duty of the husband. Okay, that's the role and the duty of the husband. And so what we see here, Again, she says, I, shall I not seek security for you? This Hebrew word, security, as we, we said, it means rest. It speaks of a condition of rest, 
It speaks of a condition of security attained by marriage. It speaks of the security and tranquility that a woman in Israel longed for and expected to find in the home of a loving husband. But it can also mean to clothe in the same way God did when he covered Adam and Eve with the skins of animal. You remember this in Genesis chapter 3 after they sinned. What happened after they sinned? They were uncovered in a sense, right? And what, it, what happened when they were uncovered? It, they became naked, right? I mean, they were naked, but then there came the realization of that they were naked. And there came with that what? Shame, right? Shame. But Jesus came and he died on the cross to despise that shame, right? Taking and bearing the cross. That he, he came and he, he showed us in the very beginning, right after that happened, that he would cover that shame of nakedness. And he kills an animal, he, a sacrifice, right? The very first sacrifice that we see of covering up sin. And it wasn't good enough, right? It, it, it didn't sustain. It didn't fully cover. Just, it covered physically, but not spiritually. They still had to be punished and exiled out of Eden and away from the presence of God. But here, at least, the shame of their nakedness was covered. So in, in another sense, this word security means rest or to be clothed or to cover. And cover means, as you guys know, to spread something over as to protect or to conceal it. Right, to provide with a covering, a hiding place, or a shelter, to assume responsibility for a person or thing, to guard and protect. And that is what the husband does. Listen, ladies and guys, because you need to understand this as your role, is that part of your role as a husband is to cover your wife, is to protect her, is to guard her, to lead her, to love her. This is what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. And we know as we continue through Ephesians that the responsibility of a husband is to love his wife the way that Christ loved the church, to, to treat and respect her body as if it was his, right? And then the role of the wife is to submit to her own husband. But we live in a time, and I think maybe it's been throughout all time, but we live in this time, where we don't like the word submission, right? And we have this this, this movement of feminism where we don't need men. And what we realize is that that's, that's a wrong mentality because we do need men and we do need women. God created man and woman for a purpose. And we know and we understand through God's eyes in the context of Scripture that both are equal. We're both equally sinners, right? And we need each other and God has designed us for that. But part of our role, which has nothing to do with who is superior and who is better, and it has nothing to do with equality, but it's a role. And the role of the husband is to be the head or the covering of the wife. I in no way see myself better than my wife. But I, I understand that my role is to be head of her. And if I take my role right, I don't use her submission against her. Because what has God commissioned me to do? To love her the way that Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? How did, he, how did he show it? He died for us. Right? So it's taking up my cross and doing the things that Boaz has been doing for Ruth. Right? Which is being merciful and kind to her. Even when she's not even, she doesn't even know it. When he's allowing and he's telling his harvest workers to let, you know, a little bit more off so that she can easily get and gather more grain and wheat. Right? He's been kind to her and loving to her in that way. 
And so she's going to find this covering and this security within a husband that God has designed. And listen, if anything that God has ever designed is good, it's always been good. Like everything that God has designed, after he designed it, do you know what he says? It's good. And when God says it's good, like it's perfect. It, it, it is the way that it was intended to be. The only reason that things that he has designed don't work out is because of sin. And if there's sin, it means that man was involved, right? So you may have a, a warped perspective or maybe a bad experience of marriage. Maybe your, your parents haven't, you know, maybe they've gotten divorced or whatever. I don't know. That's not the picture of God's design. That's man ruining God's design and not being obedient to the way that God had intended. And we can do that. We can do that easily with many things, even just outside of marriage. But again, the intent of marriage is for the man to cover the wife, but who covers the man? God, Jesus. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is the head of man. And so as I'm submitting to Jesus, just the same way that my wife is submitting to me, right? But, and, and here, listen, ladies, because you may not, again, you, you, maybe you don't like this, and you, you, again, you don't like the word submission. Who else was submissive? Jesus. And who is he submissive to? Who is his head? Who is his covering? The Father. Right? He was submissive. Is Jesus any less than the Father? No. And if we think that, we have really bad theology. If we see Jesus, we see the Father. They are one. But yet Jesus was submissive to the Father, and he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he does exactly what the Father asks of him to do. Right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says, by Paul, he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. As long as Adam obeys God and follows God, he was under God's cover. He was under his influence. But once Adam sinned, once he fell into that temptation of, of Satan's deception and ate of the tree, Adam stepped out of God's covering, right? Once he moved out of God's covering, he knew that he had sinned, and he saw himself as naked. And when he saw himself as naked, what did he do? What did he try to do? He tried to hide. Yeah, he tried to cover himself, and then he tried to hide from God. And who did God go to in the midst of that sin when both of them were exposed and naked and shameful? He goes to Adam. He goes to the head, right? He goes to the one who has that role and that responsibility. And so here, Adam loses the covering of God and tries to, to find another or different covering, right? He tries to cover himself from God rather than be covered by God. And so as a husband, it's our responsibilities to be that protector, to be that lover, to be that provider, you know, as we are co-heirs with Christ, right? Like, like we are husband and wife, but in the same sense, we're also brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that's important to understand. And so as a husband, being a wife's covering doesn't mean that I dominate over her or that a husband dominates over his wife or controls her. But again, rather as Peter points out in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, which I'll read in a second, it means honoring and respecting your wife. This is what Peter says. And listen, if, if we're Christians, we, it's our call and our command to be obedient to what Christ says to us. So he says, Husbands, likewise dwell with them, speaking of your wife, 
with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, many of us are like, what is that weaker vessel? I don't think it implies spiritually, because if you know what, if you look around the church sometimes, it's the women who are spiritually stronger than the men. It's the women who will often take over the, the, the praying, you know, when it comes to corporate prayer. It's often the women who are the ones who are truly walking with the Lord and doing what is right, and it's the men who are, you know, are the weak ones. And so when Peter says, you know, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, I think it has to do with, like, a physical thing. Like, it's, it's common sense, maybe not again, not now in 2023, but it's common sense that women are typically, typically, right? This is not a universal statement, but they're typically weaker in that sense, right? Hence why men who identify as women and play sports in a women's league dominate, right? Because they're built different. We're built different. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's science. That's biology. That's, that's scripture. That's God designed men to be men, and we don't take anomalies, and we make them the truth, right? There's anomalies, and that's what they are. And so he says, as the weaker vessel, give honor to the wife. And he says, look, if you don't do that, he says, your prayers, they could be hindered. So God adds that. He adds that. Why? To protect the woman. Because sometimes the woman can be vulnerable. And so, again, as we see all throughout Scripture, God, God protects and he puts these laws and these conditions within to protect certain people who may be vulnerable, whether that's widows or orphans or strangers, foreigners. Like, he adds these things in there, or as we see here with wives, that we are to honor and respect them as husbands. And so, again, that's our role. That's our function. Um, it's expressed through the idea of covering It conveys exactly what Jesus provides and that the scripture teaches. Um, Jesus, he was the example of a servant leader, right? Leaders can only command if we know how to obey. We can only be a leader if we know how to be a servant. And so the Son of God always remained under covering of God the Father because, and yet, as he does that, he always operates with a great power and freedom. And so I say that because it means that woman is not, and the wife is not, you know, is, they're not controlled, or they, it's not they don't have freedom, but yet they have this, this, they have more of a freedom when you have a covering, right? You have more of a freedom and power to do things that God has called to do, and it's the design intention of God. And again, without that covering, what are we? We're naked, right? And nakedness always, it always brings shame, right, whether that's physically or spiritually, but that occurs when the covering is gone. It's when we are the most vulnerable, the most unsafe, is when we are naked, yet God is gracious, right, and he quickly acted, and he covered covered them with the sacrifice of an animal. And so marriage is a good thing, guys. Marriage is a good thing. Um, So in verses two through four, let's get through this quickly. Ruth lays out this plan of this is how you're going to get his attention. Now, listen, some things in the Bible are very unique to the Bible and to its time and to its person and to its situation. So, ladies, don't try this at home, okay? Um, Or don't try this in his home, I guess, is what I would say. Um, 
I just saw a really weird article, which I can't bring up, but it totally relates to this. Uh, she says, now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Like, so, so she says this like, as a reminder, like, this is the guy, right? Like, this is the guy. He says, she says, in fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. She knows exactly what, where he's at, what he's doing. Why? Because Boaz was, a, was an upright guy. He was committed to his work and doing things diligently. She says, therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finally finished eating and drinking. Like, practical wisdom there from this older woman. Like, let him finish eating first. And then go do your thing, right? Because if you interrupt his eating and his drinking, he's going to be a grumpy man. Now, I don't think from Boaz, but some practical wisdom. She says in verse 4, Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. Figure out where he's laying, where he's sleeping, right? Like covert operation, sneak in there, make sure no one sees you, and find out where he's sleeping. And after you find out where he's sleeping, you shall go in and uncover his feet. Like, that's romance, guys. That is romance. Uncover his feet. Now, there is no innuendo in this, okay? Some people, some translations, some commentators take this as there's something more going on. This is an innuendo to something. No, this is literal. Just go uncover his feet, and she says, lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. This is after he, like, wakes up, and he's, like, completely startled. We'll see that next week. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. And so basically the bottom line is with all this is that Ruth is going to the threshing floor. She's going with one thing in mind, and that's to get Boaz to notice her and for him to see that she is interested in him, right? I'm sure there's other ways that this happens in our time, right? It's different, but the same. And so she starts off by reminding her that is this not our relative. A good reminder that this is the kinsman redeemer. Just reminding them with, with the word here, this relative, this word relative, the Hebrew word is goel, which means, translated, it's the kinsman redeemer, who had a specifically designed role in Israel's family life, that it was his responsibility to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow. And as we study through this, we're going to see that this has everything to do with a picture of Jesus to come, right? That he is going to be ultimately our kinsman redeemer. How does that happen? Well, when, when man sins, the punishment is for animals. Oh, no, you're right. It's all men. It's not animals, right? So animals could never be the perfect sacrifice. Is that right? So when they sacrificed animals, it was just a cover-up in a sense, like to, to lead to something that was greater, something, it, it's kind of like sweeping and, and putting it under the rug. Well, it's still there, right? It's just hidden from your, your view. It's not really doing any, any good. But it's a picture of Jesus to come to be that kinsman redeemer. So if, if the punishment for sin is for man, well, then man has to be the one to pay that punishment. So what does God do? Well, he becomes man, right? He becomes the kinsman. He becomes one of us. Like he's like a part of the family in a sense. And so he takes on that role and that responsibility. And so when he comes and he dies in our place and gives us that opportunity to become righteous in him as we put our faith in him, that not only is he, he's not just sweeping the sin under the rug or the, the dirt under the rug, but he's completely getting rid of it and he's transforming us into a new person. 
that's the beautiful picture to come. And so, so Boaz is this picture of this kinsman redeemer speaking of Jesus to come. And so she says, look, she, he, he's winnowing the barley here at the threshing floor. You guys know what that means, the winnowing the barley? So they would kind of, um, they, they would uh, get the, the grain of the wheat away from the chaff. They would throw it up in the air. And as they throw up in the air, the two would separate and the grain would fall back down because it was heavy. And the wind would pick up the chaff, the stuff that's not edible, the stuff that's not good, and it would blow away, right? That was their wonderful way of, of doing things then without the technology that we have today, right? Today, we would put a fan up, right, and let it blow away, but they use the wind. Um, really, really amazing stuff. And so in verse 3, let's get through this really quick. She says, wash yourself. Why? Make yourself presentable. Make sure you ain't stinky, right? I mean, you've been working hard, and sometimes they, don't, they didn't shower every day like we do. Some of you shower like twice a day. So wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put, put perfume on, right? But here's the big thing. On top of that, she says, put on your best garment. And there's, there's something culturally here that we need to understand. When a woman's husband died, when they became a widow, they wore certain clothing to show their grief, to show that they were grieving, right? They would usually wear something black or dark, in color, and I'm sure up to this point, that's what Ruth was wearing. Some dark colored stuff, because in that culture, that's how they showed their sign of grief on top of actually grieving. And so here, as she puts on this new garment or this best garment, she's now going to show, as she puts on probably, I don't know, like, let's say like a daisy dress or something. I don't know, what do you guys girls like? A red dress, a blue dress, a white dress, whatever it is. It's, it's, um, what's the word? It's, uh, it's obvious to Boaz that now, as she changes garments, that she's no longer grieving, but she's making herself available and showing that she's interested. Does this make sense? Okay, so she's bathed. She's got, she smells good. I mean, that's a good thing, right, guys? She smells good. She's bathed. She's got a, a different dress on now, you know, showing that, look, I'm ready. I'm available. Um, you know, I've been able to process this, um, indicating to him that, again, she's serious with her intentions. And as we finish verse 3, Naomi gives this wonderful advice that you wait till he is finished eating and drinking, which we already talked about. And verse 4, she says, notice where he lies, right? Pay special attention to where he's laying down on the threshing floor, right? It was only when she determined where he ended up reclining on the floor that is where she was going to go to. That is where she was going to uncover his feet and lie down and wait for his instructions. Now, why is she uncovering his feet? There's nothing provocative going on here. There's no innuendo, right? But it's a gesture that was understood in that day that we don't understand now. In that culture, it was understood as an act of submission. And so she does this as she's obedient to this wisdom that this older lady is giving to her. And so she's going and doing this, presenting herself and doing the role of a servant to lay at her master's feet, being ready for any command that she gives him. And next week we'll see kind of his reaction to all this and what happens. But she ends in verse five by saying, all that you say to me, I will do. There was no questioning. Like it, to us, it sounds crazy. It sounds weird. I'm going to hurry up. I promise. But this was a simple response of obedience. And I want to encourage you with this, because young people, listen, older people, not all of them, but most older people are pretty wise. 
And I know when we're younger, we think they're stupid. Like, oh my gosh, they don't know how to use an iPhone. They don't even know how to get the camera open, right? Or yada, yada, yada. Look, that's not wisdom, guys. That's not wisdom. Older people, a majority of the time, especially when they're walking in the Lord, specifically when they're walking in the Lord, they're wise. Listen to them. Respect them. And if they have wisdom to give to you, you better listen. You better take it to heart because here we see this wisdom given to Ruth by Naomi and without hesitation says, all that you do, all that you say to me, I will do. Sometimes older people know a thing or two. Job 12.12 says, wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. Proverbs 16.31 says, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 20.29 says, the glory of young men is their strength. Right? You guys are out here balling. And I'm talking to this older gentleman in the lobby, and he's like, I used to be able to do that. Right? He's like, but that was like hurting me watching you guys do that. But the end of verse 29 says, the splendor of old men is their gray hair. They have wisdom. They've been through things. They've grown through things. They've, they've gained understanding. They've been walking with the Lord. Right? What old men lack, the strength and the agility and the, the, the endurance that you have as a young man or young woman, they make up in their wisdom that is appropriate to those who have gray in their head. Now, that's not a literal thing, right? Some guys don't get gray. Some guys lose their hair. But the point behind Proverbs, there's a wisdom to those who are older than us. And we should listen to them. Take it to heart. I mean, even in Titus chapter 2, Titus tells us, like, read it on your own time because I'm out of time, but he tells us and he tells the older men and the older women to basically admonish the younger men and the younger women that it's their responsibility to pour into the younger ones. It's our responsibility, it's your responsibility to not disrespect, to not roll your eyes, but to understand that God has given them a wisdom. Because listen, I know we don't think it, but one day you too will be old. And one day you too, as you walk in the Lord and it's been 30, 40 years, you will have that wisdom as well. We're to have that respect, the respect on both sides, because even... Um, was it Timothy is, is told and said, look, let no one despise you because of your youth, right? Older people shouldn't despise and think of you as, ah, oh, they're just teenagers, they're stupid. No, God can use you. God used way younger people to be kings of Israel. I think the youngest was like six, right? If a six-year-old can do it, you can do it. So it's not, God's no respecter of persons even when it comes to age. But we've got to know as younger people, that there's wisdom in those who are older than us. Listen to them. Go to them. Ask them. Glean from them. Right? And if, if need be, if it lines up with the Lord, be obedient to what they, what they share with you. Just in the same way that Naomi here shares with Ruth. So let's end there tonight. Um, actually, I want to read one quote to you because I love this quote. Mark Twain. I say this one all the time. Mark Twain says this. He says, When I was a boy of 14... My father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. If you don't understand it, basically, sometimes you are way too prideful and arrogant in your young age and think, man, everyone's so, much, so stupid. My dad's stupid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he's, listen, we've all been there. We were all teenagers once. We, we know how you think. We know things. My son asks me sometimes, or he challenges me, and I'm like, dude, I'm smarter than you. 
Just <laughs> like, don't you think it's silly that my nine-year-old son would challenge me with things and, and say like, how do you know that? Or I forget what he says, but I'll be like, dude, I, I'm actually smarter than you. As of right now, I'm smarter than you, right? I know things. I've been through things. I know what you think. When you're trying to be deceptive, I know because I've been there. I've done that. It's no different with you guys and older people. It's no different with me and older people, right? Now, again, that's not a universal statement that all old people are wise, right? But when they're walking in the Lord, you bet they are. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. I pray that you continue to give us wisdom through your word and even through older people. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, have a good week. I will see you Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. <laughs>